We are starting a new study. I'm kind of excited. I get to read the end of Luke, and now I get to read the beginning of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrates from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moab wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you and your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for the sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, And to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, 
when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Good morning. Such a lively crowd. Everyone's had their coffee. Starting a new book. Isn't that incredible? I think this is the first time I've done an entire chapter study in years. It's doing the whole chapter. I couldn't believe it. Some people have asked how I decided to teach out the Book of Ruth. Well, I really like the candy bar. So um, I was on a mission trip during my college years. And uh, one of my mentors taught out of the book of Ruth while we were at this trip. And so it had just a really positive impact in my life. So I've actually wanted to teach the book of Ruth for a long time now. And so here we are. Now, in looking at the book of Ruth, we first need to take a look at context. What came before the book of Ruth was the book of Judges. And what comes after the book of Ruth is 1 Samuel. In order to get this context, let's look at Judges, just the last chapter, last verse, because this is going to kind of give us a little framework moving into the book of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So imagine that. Everyone does what's right in their eyes. No law, no order, chaos, just really difficult times. And if you look into 1 Samuel it's similar. Things haven't changed all that much. It's still the time of the judges, right? Until you get to the coronation of Saul. Now, if you want to learn more about 1 Samuel, did a series on that a few years ago. And um, it's not as long as Luke, but it is pretty long. But you can listen to iTunes about that. So, sandwich in between those is Ruth. And it gives you a context that these were really difficult times for the Israelites, for God's people here. It's important to remember that although these people were in difficult times and you may be in difficult times, that God is still with us, that God is still in control. And it may not appear like so in the moment of difficulty, but he is working and he is concerned with the things that concern you and he cares for the things that you care about. And we'll get to that a little bit more. Let's start right into verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The judges ruled from 1150 B.C. to 1025 B.C., and so it starts at the death of Joshua, Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and it goes all the way to the crowning of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So in this span of time, in, in this era, was a really chaotic time in the history of the Israelites when destruction and apostasy and anarchy and infighting, they just ran rampant in this area. So it's just utter societal, religious pandemonium. And within this chaos was a famine. So if you can imagine, they're already suffering this hardship. They're already suffering this chaos. And on top of that, they have this famine. Now, if a famine were to strike you, affecting your spouse, affecting your children, what would you do? Put yourself in Elimelech's shoes here. You'd worry about food. right? You'd worry about it. And if you had it, if you had means and, and, and you had it, you'd wonder how long it would last. If you didn't have it, you'd wonder, we need to go find it, otherwise my family's going to die. 
So Elimelech made the decision to go to Moab with his family, and it's written that he went to sojourn in Moab, which tells us that his intent wasn't to stay there. He was just being pragmatic. He wanted something better for his family, so he was looking for greener pastures. And ironically, Bethlehem means house of bread or house of food. But they suffered a famine, they suffered the lack of food, and had to leave the house of bread, the house of food, and seek it elsewhere. Do we have a map of that? Where is Bethlehem? Bethlehem's in Judah. And so the first square towards uh, the Mediterranean Sea, that's Bethlehem. Moab's across in what's modern-day Jordan, and that's Moab. Just to give you some idea of, of this. So it's in Judah. Bethlehem is in Judah. It's about six miles south of Jerusalem. And what we have in Bethlehem is a really tight community, a community that valued the common good of the collective community over that of an individual. These were people who took hospitality and caring for one another very seriously, not just in practical ways, but also in religious ways. So you can just imagine how deep the ties were towards one another, that their values, their cultures, their religion, their faith, all these things bonded them together. But then Elimelech and his family, they break those bonds. They break them to go somewhere else. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, names were very important in this culture, and during this time, unlike ours today, we kind of name people the names because they sound good. Oh, that goes with my last name. I'm having another child, but we can't name him or her Brock, right? Because that would be really... Uh, my last name's Lee. So it's just, it's, some things don't work, right? Some things don't work. But people kind of name, name their kids after, like, what they're like. Here comes baby number one. It's Machlon, or Machlon, and, oh, kind of looks sick. Oh, yeah, that's a name. Maklon means sick. And then here's another boy. Oh, this one. Oh, this boy's kind of pining, um, suffering. Um, Kilion. This, this kid's name's Kilion. So, no loving parents in today's day and age would name their kids sick or pining, right? They might say that in the, under their breath or off to the side of sick. But they're, they're not going, like, oh, sick kid. Right? They don't do that. And so, back in this time, they did. They just named them what they were. Right? Sick. Uh, Piney. That's just how they did it. That's how they identified them. And so, perhaps this was why Elimelech had to leave, because if these boys don't eat soon, they're going to die. They're sick. They're pining. There's not a lot of time to mess around with a famine. So this makes complete common sense, doesn't it? A famine is in the land. You have sick and pining boys. It's time to go look for a better place for them. This is survival. And from our perspective, this makes total sense. But let's get into the perspective of that time, of the people living in that time, in that place, in that culture. And you keep in mind that Elimelech also has a meaning. And his name means, my God is king. My God is king, Elimelech decided to leave God's land. 
God's presence was in the land according to the Jewish faith, and God told the Jewish people that He would meet them in the promised land. So a lot of their faith was tied, is tied currently today, that's why you have all the fighting today, to the land. And if God was going to meet His people fulfilling His promises, it was going to be in the land. So Elimelech's decision, my God is King's decision, is shocking. There's a reason why he was named Elimelech. That faith, that trust. But now, that is out of character. That is not Elimelech. And so he left the promised land to go to a foreign land. So is God really indeed Elimelech's king? Is he living up to his name? My God is king. Did Elimelech lose his faith that God is king? Did he lose his trust? Did he tell himself, you know what? He's not my king. I'm the ruler of my life and things need to happen now because my family's going to die. I have sick and pining sons. So did his trust in God just wane? And out of the places he could have traveled to, he went to Moab. Now where's Moab and where are the Moabites? They're in modern day Jordan. And God specifically told the Israelites not to associate with the Moabites. And there was this bad blood between the Israelites and the Moabites. And that can be found in Numbers starting in chapter 21. We don't have the time to get into that. But for your reference, it starts in chapter 21. And you can read the rest of Numbers for that. And there was also other reasons for disassociation that can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it is written that the Moabites didn't help God's people as they were fleeing from slavery from Egypt. And not only did they not help they actively sought their demise and they actively cursed them. This slave race that is trying to escape from the bondage of slavery, they're not just not helping. They are cursing them. They are looking for their demise. And so you look at the relations after Ruth. So you look at Second Kings chapter 3. And this bad blood continues on and it still continues on today. As I said, Moab is modern-day Jordan, and these two countries today are tolerating each other, but there's always tension between the two. Always. There's only one strip of fresh water there, right? The Sea of Galilee. There's always tension. If you think famine is bad, talk about drought. Right? So back to Elimelech. He loved his family. He wanted to provide for them. He didn't want to see his sickly and pining boys die right before him. So he decided to go to a place that the chance of survival was greater. And yes, it went against his culture and it went against his values to leave the land, period. But Moab? Moab. Out of everywhere you want to go, Moab. And so this decision is going against his faith. It is going against the law. It is going against his religion. But he knows that that's where food is at. And so you imagine the desperation. You imagine how horrible he felt to leave his community, to go against the law, knowing that his name is my God, is King. And then you look at the difference between verses 1 and 2 in regards to going to Moab. In verse 1, It's written that he went to sojourn to the country of Moab. Sojourn means to dwell there for a time or to dwell there temporarily. Look at how sojourn changed from verse 1 to remained in verse 2. To remain there is to become like, 
to be established there. It wasn't just to dwell there anymore and wait out the famine and then head back to Judah, head back to Bethlehem. They became like the Moabites, the people that God told them not to associate with, the people that God told them, that's why. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So here, Elimelech, he tried to save his family, but he himself died in Moab, leaving Naomi a widow with a sickly and a pining son to care for her in her old age. These two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Naomi experienced this heavy, heavy grief and bereavement period at the death of her husband. And then she got to experience joy because her two sons got married. So the loss of a husband and then the gaining of two daughters and the gaining of this prospect that she might have grandchildren. But then, verse 5, And both Machlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech died, left her a widow. Her two sons got married. Things start to look good, okay. Then they died. And these were really bad times for a widow in a patriarchal society as it left her with no provision, it left her with no protection. So now what? No husband, no sons. What was she going to do in her elderly years in a patriarchal society that depended on men? Now imagine what went through her head after these tragedies, all the what-ifs flooding her head. You know, What if we stayed in Bethlehem? What if we went back earlier instead of remaining in Moab? And all these what-ifs and questioning decisions that were made with little to no options as to what was going to happen in her life. It was the time of the judges. So she was living in chaos to begin with and had no control over it. There was a famine and she had no control over it. There was the death of her husband and her sons no control, all of it horrible, and none of it did she have any say or control over. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like everything around you is caving in and there's little to no hope for your situation or your circumstances? That's Ruth. And to make matters even worse, this was seemingly the end of her family line. She was not going to remarry. She had no other sons to carry on the family legacy. This was it. And the fact that your family line would be extinct, gone, that was shameful. That's why in this culture there was a partiality towards having boys. Because things passed on to them. Everything passed on to them. And so having girls, that, that wasn't looked upon as a blessing. Even though I have three. And it's a blessing. But property, the name, the identity passed through the male in a patriarchal society. She used to have two sons. So imagine how proud and happy they must have been, even though they were sick and pining. But still, they were sons. And how proud and happy that moment was for them. And now she enters this time of shame and sadness without anything except for a miracle to pull her out of this desperate situation. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So news reaches Moab 
that the famine is over in her land. And you notice that she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Notice how glory and honor were given to God. You notice how the Israelites weren't credited for, you know, they were working really hard. They, they, just, they just got behind it and said, we're going to take control of this situation. We're going to do this. They weren't noted for their innovation or their creativity and how they got their food. It said, it was the Lord. It was not the people. We need to be careful about how great and talented and resourceful and smart we think we are. Right, people have done some incredible things with science and how we farm and how we manufacture food. But how much of that is possible if not for one or two things? The sun. Water. Created, provided to us by God. And how much of what is happening in farming created by man is actually good for us? You think of the amount of pollution or the super pests or, or chemicals in the food or, or slave labor because we've created this kind of machine. See, no one is a better creator than God. No one is a better provider than God. Ultimately, it is God who visits his people and gives them food. So let us give glory and honor to him who it is due. It is God. And if, if there is anyone to thank, it is God. So when Naomi heard of the news, she arranged to head home. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She started out with two daughters-in-laws, and it's uncertain at this point whether they had it in their mind to journey with her all the way to Judah, or if they were just being courteous and respectful to walk with Naomi as far as they could before they were going to say goodbye. Now, whatever they were thinking, they would have journeyed with Naomi for some distance because it wouldn't have just been like, oh, we're going to Judah. Okay, see ya. That's not how it's done. That that would be rude. That would be uncharacteristic of this culture to treat someone, especially their elders, in that way. So it's not until verse 8 until we find out that they are going to go to Bethlehem with her or not. But at this point, they're going to journey with her as far as they can. Verse 8, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. And here's where the decision point is, whether to go with Naomi to Bethlehem or for them to go home. Now something interesting here in verse 8 is what Naomi said. She said, Go return each of you to her mother's house. Now this was an unusual statement in a patriarchal society, as mentioned before. It's just not in the Bible all that much. It's only in there a few times, Mother's House. It's referenced in Genesis chapter 24, Song of Solomon chapter 8, and Ruth. That's about it. The rest of the Bible, when it's referencing someone's house, it's referencing Father's house. What's going on here? Why is Naomi saying Mother's house? Well, Naomi was referring to marriage and love. People didn't date at this time. It wasn't like ours. Like, a guy wouldn't be like, oh, she's, she's hot. I'm going to go ask her out. You would be killed. <laughs> like in my house. <laughs> right? So, you need to ask somebody. <laughs> so, they didn't date. Things at this time, they were arranged. Marriages were arranged. And so, mothers had a huge say in whom their children were going to marry. Oh, that boy... My girl. 
All right. Hey, mama, let's get together. Let's talk. And so they talk. And so that's how it was. So, so what Naomi was telling them was, go back to your mother's house so she can arrange for you to marry and to find love because I'm not going to be able to do it. I have nothing. I'm not going to do you any good in finding a husband. I've lost everything. I don't want to drag you down with me. So go back to your mother's house. Let, let her do her job. And so Naomi didn't want to burden them anymore. She loved them. She wanted what was best for them. And she wanted them to be free. Free of any feeling of guilt or obligation or responsibility for her. And then she says something that's really, really awesome in verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord deal kindly. And the, and the Hebrew word is chesed. With you. May the Lord deal goodness kindness, faithfulness, graciousness, mercifulness, favor with you. Why? Because her daughters-in-laws, they were lovely people who dealt with the dead, her husband, her sons, and with Naomi in, in beautiful and wonderful ways. These were wonderful women. And they could have just left her on the day that their husbands died, but no. They stayed. They could have left the day that he died and went back to the mother's house and, and said, like, you know what, there's no future for me there. I need to start over. But they didn't. And they knew that the sooner that they left, they could start their life over sooner. But they stayed. And they loved Naomi. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So Naomi's saying, I, I'm setting you free. Go. I, I have nothing to offer you. There will be no rest with me. Life is going to be terribly tough. So go start a new life that I can't give you. And the Lord can do that for you. And you'll find rest in the Lord. So go. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So you see here how much they loved each other and the commitment that they had towards one another and how unselfish they were to one another. This is just a beautiful, genuine love one had for another. How many of you have this with your mother-in-law? No. This is awesome, right? This would be awesome. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So they objected. These women were incredibly close to Naomi, and, and tragedy tends to do that to people, doesn't it? it? It tends to bring you closer together. And so they've experienced death of their loved ones together. They've experienced caring for one another, helping each other through grief and mourning and supporting each other. Verse 11, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? Now Naomi tries to appeal to their common sense, pointing to the obvious. She attempted to get them out of their emotions to help them to think clearly and pragmatically about their futures. Verses 12 and 13, Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is pleading with them, use your common sense. Think about this. Even if things happened tonight and I got remarried and, and, I, and I had a son, it wouldn't work. And you notice this phrase in verse 13, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now you jump to verse 20. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So, so much bitterness in her life. She lived in a time of the judges, a chaotic time for her to live in. She left her home town, her community, her land because of famine, and she went to Moab where she knew she was not to go. There her husband died, as did her two sons, and it's pretty evident that her life is bitter. And she was telling her daughter-in-laws, I don't think you want to be with me anymore. Look at my life. Look, Look at what's been happening with me. My life is just full of bitterness. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. They loved each other so much, it was really difficult for them to part ways with one another. And Naomi pleaded with them to go back with their families while she headed back to her homeland. Following on in verse 14, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah gave Naomi a parting kiss, and she did the practical thing. She took Naomi's advice, and she agreed that Naomi was right, so she packed her bags and headed to Chicago to start a talk show. But Ruth, Ruth clung to Naomi. You know she was actually named after Orpah, but they mixed it up and that's, that's why. Yeah, a little trivia. Okay, there. Anyway, she wasn't going back. Ruth clung to her. Why would Ruth choose such a bitter and hopeless situation to involve herself in, to be a part of. Doesn't that seem odd? Well, Naomi and her family had a profound effect on Ruth's life. Naomi even tried to do it again, tried to help her come to her practical senses again. Verse 15, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth, it's not too late. Go, go, go to your sister-in-law Your sister-in-law who has gone back to her people and to her gods. And this is exactly what Ruth didn't want. She had Naomi's influence on her life long enough to know about Naomi's people and Naomi's God. So this wasn't just about being with Naomi anymore. This wasn't about being a Moabite and getting an opportunity for a new life with a new husband and family. This was her life. Not just a temporary, but everlasting life. A spiritual destiny that demanded that she exercise her faith and belief and trust in Naomi's God. What Elimelech, Naomi, Ruth's husband, and her brother-in-law believed to be true, she was going to live in that truth. She did not want to go back to where she came. She didn't want to go back to her gods. She didn't want to go back to her people. She wanted to go with what she believed to be true in Naomi's God that was with Naomi's people. Verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi, you're not getting rid of me. Your life may be bitter, but I still want what you have. I want your God to be my God. And I believe He is powerful to do as He wills. And you see how important it is for us to portray the Christian life, not that we have it all together, but that we have God. 
right? Not, not that we won't experience difficult times, but we have a God that is going to walk with us through those times. And if you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that your life's just going to be full of blessing and everything's going to be hunky-dory and everything's going to go well. That belief would be idolatrous, wouldn't it? Because you wouldn't be focusing on God, you'd be focusing on the gifts or the blessing. We need to point people to God. We need to point people to Jesus, to having a relationship with Jesus. And it's not these other secondary benefits of being a follower of Jesus that are the interest to non-believers that we should be portraying. It's Jesus himself, a relationship with Jesus. And it's really simple. Follow Jesus or follow other gods. That's about it. It's not a complicated decision at all, but it's a decision that we have a difficult time following when we just live in the practical, when we just live in the sensible. Because when you're thinking, I have to leave what represents security for me, stability for me, and truly live out faith in Jesus Christ, which may be different, that's tough. How many of us can really say where Jesus goes, I will go? To decide to follow Jesus even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. When things get challenging for you, where do you find yourself turning? Do you go back to your people? Do you go back to your gods? What's familiar and safe to you? Do you go back to those things? Do you go back to that addiction? Do you go back to that unhealthy relationship? Even though Jesus may not be leading you there. The Christian faith is the simplicity of walking with Jesus. That's it. You don't have to prove anything to Him. You just walk with Him. And isn't that what our relationship with Jesus is about? And so where do you find yourself this morning? Striving for these other things, and yet you're still discouraged, and you're lost, and you're disheartened, and you're confused So was Naomi. And she knew where she had to turn the Lord. Verse 21, the Lord has brought me back empty. Yes, she was empty, but he brought her back. She was still walking with him. And you know what a lot of people are fearful of? This is a huge fear, especially for a lot of people in the Bay Area. To be ordinary. Everyone wants to be me, right? No one wants to be just, hey, I'm, I'm average. I'm just average. Nothing special about me, right? No one wants to be that. They want to be the best athlete. They want to be the best this. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a lot of money. They want to be famous. They want to do extraordinary. They want to be able to pat them on the back and say, like, hey, that guy, he's got it together. No one wants to set out in life as... I set out to be ordinary. I'm ordinary. Think about this for yourself. Who's the most influential person ever to touch your life? A celebrity, anybody? Anyone that more than like two people here would know? They're ordinary people. It's probably like your mom. It's for me. Most influential person in my life? My mom. And I think a lot of you people have met her and known her, but you don't know her. Just an ordinary woman. Ordinary people. And yes, God is in the extraordinary, but God is also in the ordinary. 
And though you may feel discouraged and lost and disheartened and confused, you need to ask yourself, am I simply walking with the Lord? Or am I striving for something else that He is not necessarily in? Because I'm pushing for the extraordinary, but He's like, I'm in the ordinary too. Verses 18 and 19, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. The decision Elimelech made to move his family to Moab was a mistake. It was. God clearly told his people, don't associate with the Moabites. And he brought them to the land of promise, and he didn't tell them to leave it. But Elimelech chose to do the rational thing. And he left the land. He left the community. He left his people. And he didn't trust in God. And of course, God knew Elimelech would do this. But you notice how God is a God of redemption. How God redeems our mistakes. How God redeems our foolish decisions. He is sovereign. He is in charge. And he makes our wrong decisions right. And he brought Naomi home with Ruth. Ruth, who is the antithesis of Elimelech, who is essentially doing the same thing Elimelech did, but for totally different reasons. Look at this. She's leaving her own people that God told the Israelites not to associate with. She's leaving her gods, her lands, to enter into the promised land and to worship Naomi's God. God will accomplish his will with or without us. Through Naomi Ruth, that is the messianic line. That is where Jesse and David, that's where Jesus comes from. And he redeems dignity from our foolish mistakes, from Elimelech's foolish mistakes. He's like, you know, even if you've made a total fool out of yourself, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to redeem this horrible decision that you've made. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? There's no way she re-enters Bethlehem unnoticed. No way. She actually caused a stir in Bethlehem, which isn't all that big of a town. Everybody knows each other's business in a small town. Isn't that true? They do. So why are these people stirred from her return? Why are they like, what? What? Hey. Because her family, her husband Elimelech, her two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, they left Bethlehem to go with the Moabites. The Moabites. Numbers, Deuteronomy, don't associate. They went there and she brought one back. What? What are you doing? You crazy woman, right? And so they left at a time of famine, a very difficult time for her community, and they deserted that community. And she came back a widow. She left with a husband, two sons, and she came back a widow with no sons and a Moabite daughter-in-law. What in the world? And undoubtedly, her return to Bethlehem had the markings of this pain-ridden, Grief-filled, hurt woman. People could tell that that was Naomi, but she looked different. Is this Naomi? Because she came back completely empty. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, Naomi's name means delight, 
or my pleasantness. My, my delight or my pleasantness. Mara means bitterness or sad. She told them, don't call me delightful, don't call me pleasant, because that name does not befit me. She told them to call her bitter, to call her sad, and Naomi was just completely honest with her feelings. No secret about her bitterness, very honest with who she is. And it's the second time she said God dealt very bitterly with her. The first time was in verse 13. Complete honesty with how she felt. And this is so important for us to exercise. It's not good to bury your feelings or to think that they're not there. Ask yourself this question. When's the last time you cried? When's the last time you cried? We need to deal with our pain and our hurt in healthy ways. Otherwise, they manifest themselves in unhealthy ways. Right, that addiction, that unhealthy relationship, that whatever it is, you're looking for ways to cope with the pain and the hurt. Because one way or another, it is going to come out of you. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So everyone there knew she deserted the community, and when she did, she went away full. She had a husband, she had two sons, she had enough means to journey all the way to Moab, so she went away full. And she came back empty. But get this, it was in her fullness that she was led away. And it was in her emptiness that she was brought back to God. So many times we are seeking more. We are seeking to be full. When that is the very thing that drives you away from the Lord. How many times can we embrace our emptiness? Because you know what? I think a lot of you can relate to this. The emptiness is what brings you closer to God. And you see how the Almighty, the the all-powerful God is a God of redemption and He uses even the horrible things in life to bring you closer to Him. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Look how the author writes this, right? They left Bethlehem in famine, back in verse 1. And they came back at the beginning of barley harvest. This is how that chapter ends. Right? Everything up to this point has been negative. Death and famine and sickly kids and all this stuff. And then here, the beginning of barley harvest. You see that ray of hope? Right? It was the beginning of barley harvest. Now, keep an eye out for that ray of hope in your life. You may be so discouraged right now. You may be so disheartened and feeling lost and confused. But keep your eye out on that ray of hope that the Lord has for you. And just know that God is working in your life. And it may not be evident. And it actually may be really quiet. But in your disheartening time, in your discouraged time, and in this dark time of your life, that may be the very thing that is ushering in that ray of hope. That emptiness is the very thing that is drawing you closer to God, where God can provide as only He can. 
And it's important to have faith and trust in God in your bitterness, in your discouragement. Naomi didn't lose her faith. She just acknowledged her feelings, that she was feeling bitter and sad and these types of things. But she kept walking with God in the ordinary flow of life. And you don't look for God just in the spectacularly high times or the low times of your life. Because oftentimes we do that. Oh, He blessed me with this job. He blessed me with this relationship. He blessed me with this. He blessed me with a house. He blessed me with... And we just look at God in these spectacular points. The relationship with God is in the ordinary. It's in the everyday things. He is with you all the time. He's present with you all the time. Live in that. Live in that truth. Simply walking with Him until the day that He calls you home into the promised land. Let's pray. Father, thank You for redeeming mistakes that we make. Thank You for redeeming things that are even out of our control. And yet they are so horrible to us. Like this famine, like the chaos in the time of the judges. So many things are out of our hands. So many things we have no control or say over, yet they negatively influence us. Yet you are in charge of those things and you are sovereign. I pray, God, your blessing upon your people. Thank you so much, Lord, for sending Jesus who redeems us from our sinful lives. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that desires to have Jesus in their life. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to open their minds and soften their hearts towards receiving you. If that is you, could you repeat this prayer with me in your heart? God, I want my mistakes to be redeemed. I want all that I've done wrong to be forgiven. Thank you for Jesus being able to do that for me. I want to accept Jesus in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.